Welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Real-world insights for your daily medical coding and billing processes. And now, here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Today, my name is Terry Fletcher. We are at our 250th episode. Can you believe that? 371 plus 1,000 downloads. And we're still going strong. So I appreciate all the listeners and everyone who participates each and every week. And uh, thank you for being here. So this week, I want to talk to you about something called the CMS Strategic Plan. So they put it, they have a fiscal year, so they put it together. They call it 2022, but it's really 2022 into 2023. And uh, you need to know it because it affects Medicare. It affects how you're going to deal with your workflows. And it's just something that you may have missed because they tend to put things out and all of a sudden you're like, wait, that's like the, the fourth lead story. It's not on the front page. So what are we going, what are we doing here? So the first thing that they put out is the Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries will be moved to ACO contractors by 2030. Now it's 2022, obviously, and we don't know who will be in the White House in, you know, in eight years. So we don't know if this will stick, but for right now, this is the plan with the current administration. So what an ACO is, and let's just first look at what their strategic plan is. It says this CMS strategic framework discusses the work of its Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation to build a, and I'm quoting, health system that achieves equitable outcomes through high quality, affordable, person-centered care. So basically, that doesn't really tell you much. What this is, is it's a new ACO model, and it's called REACH, that's the acronym, Realizing Equity, Access, and Community Health. And they launched it in February, and in the same month released a request for participants, so providers, to submit applications to be part of it. And it's voluntary. So that's the other thing. I'm like, Howard, why would doctors do this if it's voluntary and you don't see any back-end reimbursement or monetization of it? But hold, hold on for that. And in, in addition, CMS Innovation Center aims to increase the number of beneficiaries that are part of ACOs and plans to measure its progress by having all Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries and most all Medicaid beneficiaries in an ACO by 2030. Now, Medicaid's gonna be tough because that's state-run. So, for example, here in California, where I'm in, we have almost everybody in what they call Medi-Cal. So it's California Medicaid, and it's it's an HMO-type type plan. So I'd be surprised if that could work in a lot of states. But this is basically people who are not in a Medicare Advantage plan, and it's somebody that um, they're part of an ACO, which again, accountable care organization. So it's a group of doctors and hospitals and other healthcare providers that work together with a goal of giving better care at a lower cost. And I'll explain how that works. So basically the ACO participants, so physicians who sign up for this voluntarily and who join it, um, they're able to save money and they get to share in the savings with the Medicare program, which to me, I, I would think it's not completely shared with them because then it doesn't make sense. But what this does is basically it has to meet this uh, ACO has to meet quality standards. They're graded based on the quality of care that the patient received. And if they don't meet the quality standards, the, this ACO, um, then the shared savings could be reduced or they may not get any of it at all. So working together, what this means is that the providers share information about the patient's care 
so that there's not unnecessary repeated tests and better coordinative care. One thing I see as an auditor all the time is a primary care doctor will run labs. They don't automatically send them, let's say, to the patient's cardiologist, and the patient then sees their cardiologist for, let's say, their three-month check, finds that there is a complaint or something that could either be cardio-related or primary care related and they run more labs, the same thing. So it's, it's basically try to offset some of those unnecessary and avoid those repeated tests and that expense. Um, patients don't have to sign up for this. It's basically they're going to have to ask their providers, are you part of an ACO? Because if they are, then the patient's automatically part of, of that ACO, sorry. And if you're part of an Advantage plan, then you're not going to be, you can't be in an ACO as well. If anyone with original Medicare can receive um, care from an, a provider that's part of this at this ACO. And again, it's, you have, the patient has to ask their physician, you know, are they there? So what's the difference as a patient would see who has straight Medicare and is not in a Medicare Advantage plan? So they would notice that their doctor may have a non-physician team member help them with coordination of care, you know, prescriptions that they may need in their community, uh, even transportation. Um, they may have their team instead of the physician talk to them about care plans. They may get text or certain uh, electronic reminders for appointments. And then also here is the, the kicker. <laughs> You, they may also notice that their primary doctor is talking with other doctors within this ACO. So no, you don't have to, or I'm talking as a patient here, to be, they wouldn't have to fill out repeat forms and repeat information. So they, you know, they don't have to have that duplication. But now without your consent, all of these other physicians are, getting, are sharing your information because you're part of that ACO. And the fact that you don't have to enroll, you're automatically part of it, that's a little concerning to me because there's a little bit of a HIPAA issue there in my opinion. Now, patients can opt out of having their health information shared with the ACO, but they actually have to contact Medicare um, at 1-800-MEDICARE to ask to opt out of that data sharing. Otherwise, doctors will continue to share information with all of the, the participants in that ACO. And you may not want a certain physician or a certain care provider to know about some of your history. And I'm talking again as if I was talking to a patient. So just something to, to keep a, an eye out for because that is coming and there's already you know a good percentage of patients and providers that are part of that. Now here's something in their strategic plan. When I read this, I was like, wait, 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 this doesn't make sense. So providers will be subject to more pre-authorization processes. What? One of the reasons we love Medicare is because Medicare doesn't have a strenuous pre-authorization unless it's DME. So they're saying that because their program integrity policies need an enhancing of the program for oversight, they need to increase the use of prior authorization. So this is, this is going to be a problem because, you know, CMS is really trying to, or I should say the HHS has been trying to manage and make the pre-authorization process a little bit easier. And now it sounds like it's going to increase for Medicare. So just keep that in mind because I know there's certain initiatives right now in place, pre-authorizations for outpatient hospitals, pre-authorizations um, repetitive uh, initiative, um, the scheduled non-emergent uh, ambulance transport initiative, 
And DME is always going to be there, you know, for prosthetics, uh, orthotics and supplies, because that's one of the biggest wasteful things that we're seeing is from an auditing perspective. But CMS has not yet really told us, they haven't articulated how it will increase the use of prior authorization or what for what services. But I'm just concerned that it could be more burdensome to a provider um, or blocking beneficiary access to care because we know we struggle with that with our commercial plans. So if you get a chance to comment on the current uh, strategic plans, which you have until September 6th, I would do that. Luckily, nursing home staffing will become more scrutinized and they really need to really need to uh, make sure they've got more quality staff there. The only thing that I think is unrealistic is that the administration announced at the beginning of 2022 that they're going to try and impose a federal minimum staff level on nursing homes. Well, if they even read the current workforce shortages out there, so say that goal is unrealistic because we don't have the staffing there and we have a shortage of nurses right now. And so um, that's really going to be tough because there's a lot of turnover in nursing home um, areas. So I'm not sure how they're going to really tackle that. And then there's going to be, and you can expect this, there's gonna be a lot of new and revised CMS regulations. If one thing the pandemic told us was that there is a problem with the minimum health and safety standards um, that needed to improve quality and continuing continuum of care and especially in nursing homes especially in end-stage renal facilities and so they're really going to be looking into that and they also talk about the great unwinding of waivers and flexibilities um, and there's a, a starting point that we had that was in April where certain waivers and flexibilities for nursing homes, inpatient hospices, uh, intermediate care facilities, um, and end-stage renal care facilities. There are a lot of those became uh, expired. And so um, there's also some things in the Medicaid program that will expire at the end of the pandemic. But with CMS issuing guidance to states to on returning to regular oper um, operations, there's also going to be some losses in Medicaid coverage. This is one thing that I don't understand. So we know we've had an extension of the public health emergency. We know that. Well, that was another 90 days. And then people are complaining, saying that, well, we need at least 60 days notice. Well, every 90 days is your notice. You know it's coming up in 90 days. So I'm not really understanding why you need a 60-day notice. So a month from now, they're going to give us another notice that it's going to end in 60 days. And then everybody can go and run and whine to Congress saying, no, 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 stay, you know, keep it going. At this point, it's a you know it's really towards an endemic, and all kinds of scientists and um, CDC even has said, and met, and physicians have said we have to learn to live with with COVID now. So to continue the public health emergency, all that does is create a lot of wasteful wasteful spending where we need to focus on something other than COVID. Think about patients with cancer. Think about patients with you know um, colon issues and obesity issues and you know, just the, the lack of um, care to homelessness and, you know, some of the patient populations that aren't being served right now in different areas. And so I, it saddens me just to think how we focus so much in the last two and a half years on COVID and everything else is pushed to the side. Um, so especially under the public health emergency. So really look sometimes into that strategic planning because I'm not always sold that they're they're doing what's right for everyone. Seems like sometimes they're just 
doing what's right for you know the few and that that's really that's really kind of sad because everybody needs to realize that we have more than one um, disease or virus that is happening right now and we're all of our funds are going in that direction so hopefully um, we'll start to recognize that and I'm talking about HHS and they will really kind of direct some funds into where it needs to go so after talking about some strategic planning I'd like to talk a little bit about some coding and I'm going to go back to some of the ENM stuff because I've had some questions that I thought you'd find interesting. Um, and also it'll give you a preview for 2023. So somebody had asked, Terry, my level of service is a level five and it's a level five new patient 99205, but it's based on medical decision making. Can I use the new extended time procedure code G2212? Um, to add on to that time. So the answer is no. So G2212, this is a Medicare add-on code for the additional 15 minutes of prolonged service time, uh, only for a level five service, whether, whether it be a 99205 new patient or 99215 established patient. But you have to be leveling the service based on the use of time. So here's also the kicker too. I think some of you may know this, but some of you may not. So in the CPT book, they made, I think, a terrible error by saying that the 99205 or 99215, you can add on the CPT code 99417 as a prolonged service code when you've hit one minute past the minimum requirement of time, which is, this just silly. That I mean, you know, I hate to say it's stupid, but it, it is. It just doesn't make any sense. And so Medicare, the G2212, which is why they came out with this, they said, that's just ridiculous. So you have to hit the maximum time, which makes sense. Why wouldn't you, why would you have a time threshold if you didn't even have to hit it before you add another 15 minutes? So the, the thought process there, no matter how many times I read through it, didn't make sense. And so um, Medicare basically came up with the 92212. But you have to be basing your code on time to be able to use either one of those services. Now, here's the great thing in 2023 on the revisions. You know, we're switching everybody, or I should say every code, to the 2021 rules on choosing either time or medical decision making, which I love the consistency. But the really good thing is that in 2023, the G2212 is going away, and we're going to have just the 99417 revised to now be based on maximum time that has to be met first. So Medicare got their way on this one. Are we really surprised? <laughs> and I think this is a really good thing. Now here's the second thing, and I was doing some auditing for a payer and I don't think everyone knows this. So this is the second coding question for today. Do we have to document start and stop times for ENM services or for the prolonged services? So it's a two, two code, or I should say a two answer uh, to that question. So for ENM services, no, you have a range of times and you have to give total times. So they want exact time um, of what happens within that, that visit. Um, but when you get into the prolonged service codes, the current instructions in the CMS internet only manual, so that's the 100-04 chapter 12, section 30.6.15D, it says you, it, it indicates you must document start and stop times for prolonged services. So. I just thought that was really interesting to see that in there because um, on the internet only manual, uh, that requirement doesn't extend to the ENM, it only extends to the add-on code for the level five. And I'm not seeing that being done, so does the doctor not get it? If they just put total time of the visit, they don't. 
So they Medicare wants to know, well, how much additional, and hopefully you hit 15 minutes of that time, or at least half that time, did you, um, did you have? And when you had that, what was involved in that? So they want to really clearly show that you deserve that add-on code extra, uh, the G2212, and why you should get that code. So what was involved in that? So I just thought that was just so um, interesting because it, it really gave you a, a clear understanding of what was needed. And I'm going to do one last one, which I, I might have done this before, but I don't remember. But I just thought this was a really good way to respond to something that's been coming up lately. And I've had this question probably posed to me 20 different ways. <laughs> and so it is taking the level of E&M on data points from basically a level uh, low to a moderate and on the category two for independent interpretation of tests. Here's where we have a problem, okay? So independent interpretation of tests, the question has been coming up, well, we ordered the test, but we did not bill for it, and we aren't giving, um, we're gonna give results for it, but the person, that the provider that actually performed the test didn't give the patient any results. And so we're gonna go ahead and, and use that data point independent, independent interpretation um, in the category two under moderate. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. My feeling all along has been that independent means that you as the provider are not staked in it in any way. So if you're the one who orders it, how is it independent with respect to that result? So that can be very easily um, manipulated in your workflow, if you are basically saying, okay, all orders go to radiology, they interpret and bill, and then it goes back to your specialty, and now you're rereading it and using it as a data point. So now the patient is getting not only a higher ENM, they're also paying a radiologist to read a service. So please don't do that. What the independent interpretation means is that there is a test performed by another physician or another qualified healthcare professional, again, you didn't bill for, that is being brought to you and you have no stake in it. It's independent, okay? So it's something that you didn't order, you didn't review, you didn't do anything to, and now it's being brought back to you. So just really um, try to be compliant with that and not get a little crazy with, um, you know, trying to figure out a way around bumping up your, your E&M. We don't want you to upcode for no reason. So I also wanted to mention today, a lot of you said, hey, I'm seeing your name out there quite a bit in other podcasts. So yes, so obviously the CodeCast is one I've been doing for five years now. Um, I'm also, they we I've got my hashtag Terry Tuesday, that is a registered trademark, where I do a segment with the compliance guy, Sean Weiss. And so that's on every Tuesday. And then also Talk 10 Tuesday, which is from ICD-10 Monitor. You may hear me once or twice or four times a month. I know I was on four times last month in July, but I am not on this week in August, so maybe next week. And then um, also I host the NSCHBC Edge podcast, which um, is on the business side of medicine. And actually, I got nominated for the best uh, podcast hosted by a female. 
So uh, we got one in business for the CodeCast, and I got a nomination for the NSCHBC Edge. So that was kind of fun. I mean, I think that's a kind of a cool thing. So check any of those out. If you get enough of me once a week with the CodeCast, I totally understand. But um, just know that's there. And for those of you looking for some maybe added CEUs, APC has been reaching out to me quite a bit. So as a HEMA, I know I did three or four for a HEMA and APC in the month of July. Uh, just some webinars for them. But here's a schedule coming up. So look on the uh, APC website under local chapter events. And on 8-9, I have one for Dayton, Ohio, non-invasive cardiology. 8-10, Orange, California, uh, what can med uh, medical assistance do? 8-16, Long Beach Torrance, which is actually my home chapter. And we're doing cardio, EP, pacemakers. And I'm repeating that same for Kalispell, Montana on 818. So just check it out and uh, hopefully you can join us if you uh, need a refresher or need some information on that. So anyway, I hope that's what helpful today. I know I kind of was all over the place between some strategic planning with Medicare, some coding questions, and then hopefully giving you some insight to get some CEUs coming up. So everyone make it a great day and have a great week. And thank you for listening to the CodeCast podcast. For more information on medical coding, billing, auditing, and compliance, including how to hire Terry, follow Terry on Twitter at TerryCoder1 or visit her website at www.terryfletcher.net. Podcast producer Joe Kuzma, music producer Assassin Music. <laughs>